This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have a place to talk with some of the most influential people in our culture, people I respect, whose work I've read, whose careers I've followed and admired. And we are talking about some of the most important subjects of our time. What I've been appreciating so much is that we're tackling the problem of talking politics and religion without killing each other. We've been hearing from some really impressive folks on how to do that, individuals who come in goodwill and good faith. It's an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Now, before we get to our conversation today, I just want to make one more appeal, and this would really mean a lot. Go into Apple Podcasts, go to Talk of Politics and Religion, that the our profile in there, and, and write us a review. Uh, in Apple in particular, I think you have to scroll down if you're doing it on your phone. Uh, they, um, they bury the option of rating and reviewing like five or so episodes down in that list of episodes, but go in there. Uh, rate us, review us, uh, actually write the review. It really does make a difference. So I have some good news, and that's that we found out that we're in the top 1.5% of podcasts in the entire world, according to Listen Notes, which is the main source of uh, rating podcasts around the world. So what's holding us back from being in the top 1% is the number of reviews we have. So if you could do that, you'd really be helping our cause in a meaningful way. And with that, I am super excited to share today's conversation with you with Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Adam Kinzinger served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2011 to 2023, representing Illinois' 16th con Congressional District. During his tenure, he served on the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, as well as the House Committee on Energy and Commerce and the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Prior to being elected to Congress, he served in the Air Force in both Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. He is a lieutenant colonel in the Air National Guard and a senior political commentator on CNN. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thank you so much for joining us. You've been working really hard with the launch of the book, and I would imagine this has got to be pretty grueling. Not like um, fueling up other planes tens of thousands of feet in the air. Uh, at 500 miles an hour, but uh, I would imagine it's still pretty uh, exhausting. So how are you holding up? I'm doing good, actually. So November was the really busy month. So if okay. you'd have asked me like on November 30th, I'd say, yeah, I'm about ready to die, but I'm fine now. You know, December, I've always kind of kept a rule, even in Congress, like don't work too hard in December yeah. because January is just around the corner. Yeah, I'm trying to guard those last two weeks of December. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm losing the battle for next week, but the week between Christmas and New Year's, I'm going to be pretty orthodox about. So. Oh, That's yeah. I mean, like, look, it's got to take a nuclear war to get you or me to schedule anything in that, like, in-between week. That yeah. is, like, the only guarantee. You cannot. Everybody's going to want your time. Don't do it. Don't yeah. do it. For me to you, don't do it. Hold no, that's a great, that's a great piece of <laughs> advice. Somebody was asking me about doing something on the 28th or 29th. And my first thought was, 
like is somebody in labor or on their deathbed? Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. like it's a no go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there an invasion going on? What's yeah. happening? <laughs> so I want to take you back pretty early in the book. You mentioned you're you're about 14 years old, and you're attending a big convention for the Christian Coalition. Uh, some of the some of the talk would would uh, the way you put it describe the opposition as dangerous, anti-American, anti-Christian, perverted, and ultimately evil. Talk about a predicate for things to come. But I was curious about if, if you could get back into the mind of 14-year-old Adam's reaction at that time. Were you, were you just soaking it all in, pretty teachable young, young man? Or were, was there a part of you that was like, wait a second, I have some neighbors or kids I you know, hang out with that, that aren't that. Were, were you starting to question the, uh, the fraught nature of, of how the opposition was described? No, not then. I mean, you know, this is so in 1992, and it was funny because until I wrote the book, I didn't realize that 1992 represented really the first time that this evangelical Christian movement and kind of your mainstream Republicanism officially, in essence, merged. I mean, so, you know, there's always like the elements of of evangelical Christianity and Republicanism. You know, Republicans used to not care about social policy. That changed kind of in the late 70s and the 80s with Reagan. And so you started to see that happen. But in 92, it was when George H.W. Bush spoke to the Christian coalition. And, you know, he actually gave a pretty, looking back on it, it was a pretty mild speech. He was like, hey, you know, yes, we need your energy, but we're not going to go back to the days of Ozzy and Harriet, you know. And uh, <clears throat> but when I'm 14, I mean, yeah, you're you're pretty much believing what they tell you. You know, the opposition is evil. They're they're out to destroy America. America is this last bastion of like holdout of Christianity. And uh, it really wasn't until, I guess, adulthood is the best way to say it. You know, a few years after I was 14, when you start to walk away from that orthodoxy, even though that's, that's, a, prob that's a process that kind of spins up over time. So it's not like one day you wake up and you're like, well, this is wrong. But you start to wonder, well, this may be wrong, or this aspect of it, or this aspect. And then eventually it's like, wow, we've basically turned into a Christian nationalist movement. And that's not at all the Jesus of the Bible that I read about. Yeah, and I mean, that's some of the most uh, interesting aspects that I was really curious about. When did you start to... you you Your first official role, uh, I think you were 20 years old when you got your first uh, elected position, a county county seat. Was it dealing with your constituency that maybe you started to say, wait a second, these, my, my constituency, they're, they're uh, maybe not as diverse as uh, California 27 where I am, which is like the purplest of the purple, but still mm -hmm. a pretty diverse constituency. Was that when you started to wonder, well, maybe I shouldn't view folks with a different letter before their name uh, as, as evil or the enemy? Yeah, I mean, I guess when I – if I think back to the beginning of my entrance into politics – like, at no point was I ever really then seeing the other side as the enemy. So that kind of, like, wake-up had to have happened before the age of 20. You know, I was never, like, extremist in my views. I When I came into county board, I was, you know, like, hey, I got along with Democrats. Just through, but, but the county board, like, there's nothing that's, like... Uh, I mean, there's no policy that is partisan in that. There's no moral issues on the county board. You're dealing with, like, should we put this mega hog farm in? And <laughs> should we repair this road and build a bridge, right? So there's nothing that's, like, the devil can have a say in. But, you know, so I, I, I never had that. And then by the time I'm through the military and I go into Congress, 
you know, right when I got into Congress, I got a reputation as a moderate. And and that was just because, I mean, I was somewhat moderate in my views. I was fairly conservative, but probably a little more moderate than most. But also, I, I believed, like, I mean, call me naive, but I actually believed in what the Constitution says, which is you have to compromise to get things done. You have to work with both sides because the way it's set up is if you're a single party rule, you're never going to get anything done. And so I think it was when that exact wake up happened, I went through a pretty rebellious time when I was 16, you know, kind of rebelling against the church. And my guess is that and kind of college and everything was the beginning of like, okay, these folks aren't the enemy. But the advantage is I could speak the language and I understood when the language was being spoken, what's being said. As a quick example, if somebody says, calls somebody a globalist, right? You know, I hear people say, well, that means that's an anti-Semitic thing. Well, maybe to some people it is. When I hear the term globalist, what I hear is people in the evangelical church talking about the New World Order, the Antichrist, right? And this belief that, you know, there's some deep, dark conspiracy that's running the government and, and those are the globalists. So it's I can speak the language and that kind of gives me the ability to look in and see what's being said and, and just be like, this is nuts. And these people believe this stuff. It's crazy. You know, you bring up a really good point, and you grew up in a, I guess you would call it a fundamentalist church tradition. I forgot the exact uh, denomination, I- ICB or something, international? It's interne- it's Independent Fundamental Baptist, okay. IFB. I call it now a cult, but yeah, you can call it a fundamental movement, either way. <laughs> well, you, you were pretty well-grounded and in, uh, you know, scripture, uh, had a fundamentalist, uh, you, were, you were brought up in a, although your, your nuclear family maybe thought a little bit more independently from what you would describe as a church based on uh, how I understood it in, in the book. Uh, I was curious with all that's happened over the last few years, in particular, some of the letters that you've received, not just, not just, you know, threatening you, but threatening your wife, threatening your baby from people who are supposed Christians. How, how has that affected your own faith? This is a fantastic question. And I think it's one of the most important ones, and you're one of the first to ask me about it. Um, look, I I struggle between a complete disappointment and kind of revulsion to the church. And I don't mean the church as the body of Christ. I mean the church as we think of it, the buildings with pastors, um, because of this stuff that was said to me, to my family, this, you know, my my... Uh, I remember one particular letter, a guy says, how dare you name your son Christian when he's the son of the devil? You know, people wishing that my, at the time, six-month-old would actually be put into uh, a prison or that he would be killed or he would wander into traffic. I mean, these are the kinds of things that, like, when I would see this, I'm like, There is a massive failure, and this massive failure is coming from church leadership. Now, what has it done to my faith? Well, look, I guess, yes, it's disappointed me in the church and in church leadership. But I actually think for my faith, it's made it stronger. Because what it's done is it's forced me to kind of look at my preconceived beliefs, to try to understand what is, you know, what did Jesus really talk about in the Bible? You know, I I was grown up believing that we had to fight evil in government because of all this X, Y, Z. And then I look back and it's like Jesus never, not only didn't he not talk about government, 
He also basically said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Remember, at one point, Peter is basically like, you know, Lord, we're never going to let them take you. We will fight them. And what did, what, did, what did Jesus say? He said, get behind me, Satan. Right. Right? So he was saying, like, not, hey, man, thanks for your energy. I'm supposed to go. But normally, yeah, go out and crucify these bad guys. He said, get behind me, because it violated the entire mission that he was there to do. So for me... You know, it's, it's, yes, it's made it tough to go to church. Okay. I'll, I'll be clear about that. You know, I, I, I've moved to Texas and we haven't found a church yet because I, my kind of PTSD is I'm going to walk into the church and people are going to be like, oh, you're Adam Kinzinger and you like the devil. I mean, but my faith has actually gotten stronger because I think now I've been forced to reconcile with what Jesus was actually talking about. What was he preaching? And I like that Jesus better than the other one I learned about. The one I learned where, you know, half of the country is evil. I like the one that cares about poor people. I like the one that cares about the downtrodden. And so it's a it's a much deeper and we could have an hour long conversation <laughs> about that in and of itself, but it's it's I think it's impacted my faith in a good way. And and I'll just say quickly too, my the letter you're ref- I think you're specifically referring to my my father's cousins sent a certified letter like anybody even does that anymore but they did to my parents house on a day I happened to be there and it basically opened up with oh my what a disappointment you are to us and to God right and it went on in this religious undertones and and the the most interesting part is it's like didn't you know that Donald Trump actually gave the plan of salvation on TV the other day and it's like wait you mean the same Donald Trump that said he's never had to ask God for forgiveness have <laughs> you read the plan of salvation that's the first part yeah so, I mean yeah it's been a, it's been an interesting journey for me but I like the Jesus now that I've come to know than than the one I knew in the past it, it is um, it is an interesting process having to refine one's theological foundation. You know, one's theological moorings, if you will, when you're forced to take a look at scripture, if it's scripture that you uh, portend to believe in um, versus what is actually the primary uh, of primary importance to the folks that you happen to be going to church with. And oftentimes what is really important doesn't line up with what you're actually reading in scripture. So in a way, you really have to it forces uh, it forces a process of discernment. I'm curious though, how did uh, Russ and Betty Joe respond to that letter? Oh, I mean, they were my I you know my dad. Those are my parents. My dad, I don't think has reengaged any of them in any kind of a relationship, um, and uh, and I haven't either. I mean, you know, I for I, I guess I I think I would say this, although I'm not positive. It's a hundred percent true. I've forgiven them in my heart, uh, the people that sent the letter, but I have no desire. And this isn't, you know, part of forgiveness isn't you got to be buddies with them again or you got to reestablish that relationship. I have no desire for that relationship with those members of the family. That is so toxic. You know, like they can come to me if they want forgiveness. That's fine. I've forgiven it. So my parents were really upset. They obviously have come around to my point of view over the last basically 12 years I've been in Congress because we talk all the time and they're like, oh yeah, that stuff makes sense. But it's, it's devastating. It's damaging. And, you know, I mean, on top of that, I had a co-pilot that I flew with in Iraq that sent me a text probably a year ago that said, I'm ashamed to have ever flown with you. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. And I'm like, thinking about it. I mean that 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 has an impact and and I'm thinking like you're ashamed of flowing with me because I'm telling you the truth and it hurts you to hear the truth like 
Because you, you, these guys, you put them on CIA truth serum, they don't really believe that the election was stolen. All this is to them is a tribal tattoo, right? That yeah. they can belong to. So, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of brain worms out there at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine that um, you, you would have a great conversation with someone like David French who shares uh, quite a few of your experiences, including go, having to go to church. You know, and, and yeah. confront folks that you consider dear, dear friends. I was curious, though, uh, your dad, Russ, he was politically engaged as well. Has there ever been a point of difference with your dad that you talked about? Uh, and if so, how, how did it, I would imagine it was a healthier conversation if you did discuss your differences. Yeah. I mean, look, so he, you know, it's funny because I, I write in the book. So he ran for state senate and uh, and in a primary and lost to a guy who ended up almost becoming governor of Illinois as a Republican, so which is very rare in Illinois. But you know, I, I joke about you know one of the things we hit our opponent on was I mean this goes to show my Baptist background was that he took money from the alcohol lobby. <laughs> so, and now I laugh about that. I look at my I look at my you know political donations and I'm like yeah I took money from the alcohol lobby too because you know you're raised in that uh, what I call the footloose environment where. Obviously, alcohol is wrong and drink, you know, any kind. So that that was funny. But in terms of differences, I mean, I think we probably still have a difference on things like gay marriage. You know, my father probably would oppose legalized gay marriage, even though he's pretty moderate. But, you know, he just can't get past that kind of religious side. For me, it's just a matter of like, look, we are a country that is not a religion. You know, we we can be founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and that's because, you know, Judeo-Christians were basically, generally, the ones who wrote the Constitution, and they reflected their values. But in government, both in Congress and, you know, anything else, I represent people that have very different interests than me. And so my the thing I, I didn't even really have to wrestle with it, but the thing you ask yourself is, okay— whether or not some lifestyle agrees or disagrees with your religion, we live in a secular country, and isn't it right that people that love each other should be able to marry each other? And so my dad and I may have disagreements on that, but he fully understands where I'm coming from and saying, you know, yeah, gay marriage is, we're, we're, we're past that controversy, and, and it's legal, and we should do everything we can to encourage, you know, family environments and adoption and people growing up in loving homes. So I would say that's one of it. And you know, maybe maybe a little on on abortion. I'm, even though I'm pro life, I mean, there's there's a lot of nuance to it. So, uh, but otherwise, I think we're fairly close on most things. Before we move on, I wanted to tell you about something else that's important: money, <laughs> uh, specifically your money. In all seriousness, I wanted to tell you about my advisor and my friend George Mesa. George runs Mesa Wealth Management. And with George, it's not just about money. It's about helping us manage our present and plan for our future. And unlike a lot of other firms out there, George and I actually have a relationship. He knows me. He knows my family. And I know his wonderful family. I also know his firm and the incredible team he's put together from his chief investment officer to some of the other great people in his office, like Jessica, their head of operations that are always there to help me and with all aspects of our portfolio. You see, the thing is, I got a lot going on. I guess we all got a lot going on. And I don't have the time to watch our investments all day, every day. And even if I did, I don't have the experience and expertise that George's team collectively has. So we get the entire Mesa Wealth Management team, all their expertise and all their integrity. 
And again, it's based on George knowing me personally, knowing my goals, and even the kind of risk that's appropriate for me to take, which, by the way, could change from one season to the next. And they're on top of all of that. So if you want George Meza and Meza Wealth Management to be on your team, just visit their website, mezawealth.com. That's M-E-Z-A wealth.com, www.mezawealth.com. And that will also be in our show notes, so you can check that. And now, back to our show. I was curious, before we move on from the family uh, issues, I would imagine... I would imagine that getting some letters from folks that are really heated, uh, folks that criticize you, even threaten you, that's one thing. But having your wife have to be named oh. or your kid, how do you deal how do you deal with it and how does Sophia deal with it? Well, it's it's interesting. So I don't look at Twitter mentions anymore because Twitter, you know, I still use Twitter for the moment, but it's become hell. Yeah. I mean it's become a hellish you know, thing. And so occasionally I'll see a comment where it's something just egregious about her and she has an active Twitter account. And, you know, I just, there's stuff that I've, I've been able to allow it to, to, instead of piercing like me and affecting me, like actually just reflect, be like, what is, what is in people's minds, right? That they are the first to respond to a tweet. Like, how, how terrible is their life that they're the first to respond to a tweet with this? The advantage we have is she was raised in politics as well. She worked in the White House. She worked for Trump. She worked for Pence. She's with me on this mission. She agrees with me. Uh, she understands, like, how evil there is out there, frankly. And the evil is not the Democrats. The evil, frankly, are the people inside our own tent, I would say, that are, that just, you know, anyway. And... And I think she sees it as her mission as well. But there, look, you know, when, when we get a, a letter sent to our home, our home address that says, you know, like I said, Christian, your son, I hope he wanders out into traffic and dies Good and Lord. you can feel what it's like. And, and uh, you know, and that kind of stuff. And your, your husband's going to end up in, I mean, I've been threatened with Gitmo, by the way, for like three years. So here's what I'm going to say to anybody listening that thinks I'm going to Gitmo, get it on with like, send me to Gitmo, quit threatening it. Right. Because it's been three years where we're just on the edge of the storm. So I think I'm just impatient too, with like, Hey, make these threats real or shut up because you know, that's where we are. <laughs> so one other area that's somewhat related, but that I, I, I consider the stakes much lower. Uh, you mentioned someone who, a fellow who's actually become a pal of mine over the last couple of years, Joe Walsh. But you referred yeah. to his firebrand tea party days. I was curious if you ever, in more recent years, if you've circled back with Joe. I talked to him just yesterday on the telephone. In fact, oh, that's so, awesome. It's funny because I use him as the example. So it's it's there was uh, and I I couldn't find it, but there exists like Time Magazine when it was a good magazine and everything. They right when we when the 2010 class came in. They did one whole page of me and one whole page of Joe Walsh. And we were kind of like standing back to back. And it was talking about the two different kinds of Republicans in this class of 2010. And he was the biggest fire dragon breathing, like, you know, <laughs> Tea Party insurrectionist you'd ever know. And obviously in the last few years, he's he's actually tried to make amends, which I have a lot of respect for. So we stay in touch and I would consider him a friend now. And, and uh, I wish him well on his mission. But yeah, I mean... It is funny to see because back in 2011, we were mortal enemies. <laughs> yeah. Well, on a bigger, uh, broader scale, uh, 
it sounds like you hold space for folks to come around. You know, in Joe's case, yeah. not only was he a firebrand in Congress, he had this radio show where he at times sounded even more extreme. Is there ever a line that someone crosses? Say, I mean, January 6th is the most obvious example. Somebody voting on that night or the next day to overturn the elections of Pennsylvania, Arizona. Is there any line that somebody crosses where you're like, no, dude, you, you've just gone too far? Or is there? Oh, are you always holding an exit ramp for somebody to join, you know, Earth 1.0? <laughs> well, it's funny because Joe Walsh on his radio show once had told people that he had heard a lot of rumors that I was into men, <laughs> and, uh, which isn't true. Nothing wrong with it if not, you nothing, are. Not that there's anything wrong <laughs> with that. Not that there's yeah. anything wrong with it. Yeah. But he was saying this on his radio show. So I'm like, okay, if I can get past, you know, somebody spreading rumors about me just for the sake of doing it, yeah, I can get past almost anything. I, I Here's my rule is, is somebody genuine, right? If all of a sudden it becomes uncool in the Republican Party to like Donald Trump, which is what I pray for every day, not there yet. But if that happens and all of a sudden I see these people jumping off the Trump train and trying to join the Kinzinger Cheney train, I'll call it, like they've been there the whole time. I don't hold a lot of space for that. The thing I respect is people that truly believe their beliefs. Um, you know, yes, uh, recently Kevin McCarthy gave an exit speech on the floor of the House and said that, you know, it's important that members are willing to give up their jobs to do the right thing. I have no respect for that. Kevin McCarthy is trying to rewrite his legacy, and his legacy is that he remade Donald Trump. He made Donald Trump, took him from the political grave, and put him back in political infancy. So something like that, to me, is a line that I'm not going to walk me back. But if there are people that are genuinely like, look, and you don't have to come like laying out prostrate, like begging for forgiveness. We, We can't have that because nobody will come. You know, I made mistakes and I talk about it in the book as well. But if we have a wake up where it's like, look, we've got to move on from Donald Trump. He was bad. He was corrosive. I welcome those folks in the tent any day because that's the only way we're going to save democracy. Yeah. No, I found the way that you described you. You had a pretty conservative voting record while in Congress. In fact, when Trump was in office, I want to say it was over 90 percent that you voted uh, with Trump or with the Republicans. But there were certain times when I forgot the prism that you used. You know, you, you considered your constituency, your beliefs. There was one other factor. I, I, forgive me. I forgot it off the top of my head. But uh, if you could describe uh, certain times that you chose to vote against your party and what those what was guiding you, what was a compass that you were looking at to make those decisions? Yeah, I mean, and it was interesting. So I was probably, if you go back in time and, and track, and I don't have the energy, the will, or the desire to do this, but the to track the number of times like Republicans spoke out against Trump, you would probably see that I was the most outspoken in the House. Um, but, you know, look, Trump was pushing a lot of Republican policies, and those are policies that I believed in, you know, like conservative principles, less taxes, less government, stuff like that. Strong national defense, although I think he was a terrible defense leader. But the, the, the times I would go against the party were like, I mean, I think specifically of, you know, the infrastructure bill was one of my last votes against the party. I, I ended up being one of just, I think, 10 Republicans to vote for that. I always, from my the beginning in office, I was always for infrastructure. In fact, I've always called for raising the gas tax. I mean, 
that tells you how sometimes I can go way out of conservative orthodoxy because I'm like the gas gas tax is simply a user fee for the roads, and if we want the roads to improve, we got to improve user fees. And so there was that. Um, I think about the Violence Against Women Act. I was con- consistently supportive of that. I that to me was just a moral issue of yeah, we should be against violence against women. It's a real problem. There's real abuse that happens. And uh, I, I was always surprised that I was one of only five or ten Republicans to vote for that. And then lastly, I remember even in the last year, because these are the ones with the freshest memories, I voted for the CHIPS Act. This was the reinvigorating manufacturing of these chips uh, you know, for electronics and stuff. And we actually – the Republicans wrote half that bill, and then I ended up being the only one to vote for it. And why? Well, because they wanted to not give Joe Biden a win. And to me – I, I've always put – I'm not – like I've always thought at least that I've put the country above the interests of my party. And in doing that, I look at something like violence against women, something like the CHIPS Act, something like infrastructure and say that's good for the country. I don't give a rat's behind what it means for a political career. And I got to tell you the most interesting thing is like those are the things I'm most proud of. I can't. I couldn't sit here and rattle off even three things I voted on with the party, even though there's thousands of things, because it never stuck out. What sticks out to me is the time when I stood alone, because I think that reaffirms to me, it reaffirms to anybody that does it, that you've got what it takes and you're willing to do the right thing. Oh, man. And there were so many opportunities for the Republican Party as a whole to do the right thing. Even before the January 6th commission that was put together, you know, John Katko uh he, he negotiated, as you, well, you know better than I do, he negotiated a much more balanced uh, commission. Man, there were so many opportunities, and uh, McCarthy, in that instance, just chose the, the, uh, the, the other way, if you will. I consider, so it's funny, I consider McCarthy kind of the committee's most valuable player because he, he you know, threw a big hissy fit, yeah. pulled all his members off the committee, which allowed me to go onto the committee, which allowed us all to work together to a common goal, which was important, um, to actually get to the truth. Not to mention, he tanked the whole, as you mentioned, the commission early that was supposed to be a 50-50 split. Like, I don't know how. He's great at raising money. He's got terrible political instincts. And the best part of it is he did it to please Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, not that long ago, threw him under the bus and said he never should have pulled his members off of the committee. And now he says... And now McCarthy says, I'll be happy to serve in the Trump administration. I don't know how many times you can debase yourself until you've had enough, but he's obviously got a ways to go. You know, one of the images or one of the scenes that you painted toward the end of the book that I really, really appreciated, you described this one-day retreat at the Library of Congress. Uh, I think it was Betty Thompson that he he had the folks on the committee just, you know, get together together. Um, and you also shared at length this description of a mosaic titled The Law. Do you, do you remember um, – you quoted extensively from somebody who posted about that, uh, that mosaic. Do you remember that mosaic? It's fraud, uh, discord, and violence versus industry, peace, and truth. I was wondering if you could describe that scene for us and the symbolic nature of what that meant to you. Yeah, I mean, I can't really. So, you know, I had to do all the the research when I was writing it in terms of what they, you know, everything that was said when it was when it was made and everything. So I don't remember all the details of it, but it was basically what it did for us is it brought this like 
conundrum of like this insane scene of of what happens when basically humans are left to their own devices when they don't have a common set of rules they want to live by all politics is is basically a handshake even the constitution it's a handshake agreement of how we're going to live life right how we're going to find our differences it's what your whole thing's about how do we how do we talk about this without killing each other literally right yeah. and 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 so it was just the difference between discord fraud, lawlessness, and then what life can be when you live under this, I'll call it the gentleman's agreement, right? This idea of here's how we're going to discuss our differences. And, and it, to us, it was very appropriate to, to, to sit there and see that and know that this is in essence what we're, we are this line in the middle that's trying to hold this chaos back. And the problem is to a lot of people, chaos seems fun. Right. Because I don't know, you've lived an entire life in comfort. So something different seems exciting until you live that life. And, uh, you know, that's where people like your listeners, people like us have got to stand in that gap and say, trust me, you don't want to live in the chaos that's portrayed here. It may may seem like an exciting Hollywood movie. You know, this movie Civil War is coming out, which I have such mixed feelings about because on the one hand it looks entertaining. On the other hand, it looks too real. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, you look at it and say, man, there's going to be, there's misery on the other side of chaos on that side of chaos. And so anyway, that to me is, is kind of, it was such a, such a moment uh, and such an appropriate moment for what we were doing. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you're working on these days. Uh, later in the book, you describe, the origin of the idea for Country First. You said, in that moment, I thought, this is in the days after January 6th, uh, 2021. You said, why shouldn't I build an organization devoted to mainstream politics? It could be open to Democrats, Republicans, and independents who are willing to put country first, ahead of party. It could also reach out to the press, educate the public, support members who took the center lane, and even field candidates. So how's Country First going these days, and what kind of work are y'all work, uh, doing right now? Well, it's going really well, and the website is country the number one st, so like one st dot com. I mean, we've got tens of thousands of members, all who are excited. You know, it started as after January sixth, I wanted to like start something to restore the GOP, and then what I realized is, in very short order, is like, yeah, I mean, restore the GOP, great. We've got to restore American democracy. And like there is this hunger. People were joining that were Democrats or Republicans or independents or I don't know what I am anymore. Or I'm politically homeless. And they just were desperate to kind of have, like you do, have conversations and talk about ideas and differences without killing each other, which I love <laughs> the name of it, by the way. Thank you. And, uh, and so, so that's, you know, I started to realize like, okay, this is this mission is broader than just like, let's fight for the soul of the GOP, even though I think that's important. It's let's fight for the soul of this country. You know, we're really good as a nation at democracy building. And I'm not talking about like Iraq. I'm saying like we send NGOs overseas and they do a great job of educating on democracy and putting institutions in place. Uh, but we've ignored it at home because we never thought we had to. And that includes me. I never thought we had to you know, build democracy at home. What's it's automatic here. Well, it's not. And so this organization has been an, uh, like to bring that together. And then on the political side of things is to basically go after the crazies, the people that I don't care what your political views actually are. And this is the funny thing is I now have less of an, nah, I'm, I'm passionate about like Israel defending itself and I'm passionate about Ukraine and I'm, you know, 
But at the same time, I'm not sitting around. Like it, Issues aren't the thing that fires me up right now. What fires me up is just simply that we have the ability to do politics again and that there is an opportunity for... I don't know that we don't that we don't destroy each other in this process and that you really believe it. So anyway, we're just bringing people together to learn how to do democracy again. I'd encourage people to take a look and we're going to go after crazies in the political environment that do not have the interest of the country at heart. That's the big thing politically that I'm loving to do. Yeah, and the link to the website will be in the show notes. Um Great. I was curious. I want to get into political weeds uh, or legislative weeds or, you know, you're, you're a poli-sci guy. You even thanked, uh, I think his name was Mr. Keogh, Kelly Keogh, yeah, your poli-sci yeah. high school teacher in, in the acknowledgments. So you could geek out with me here a little bit. One of the things, <laughs> uh, one of the initiatives at Country First is advocating for is nonpartisan primaries and general election ranked choice voting. I like the idea in principle, but... On a secondary or maybe tertiary level, someone like Yuval Levin, who came on the program a few weeks ago, disagrees with you. He still thinks that parties are a really important part of the political process. And while he agrees with the idea of ranked choice voting, he, his, he's supporting initiatives for ranked choice votings in the primaries. Could you describe uh, for our audiences maybe that aren't as much of a geek as I am uh, what the differences are and why you're advocating for nonpartisan primaries and general election ranked choice voting? I, don't, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't know how ranked choice voting in a primary would really work or how it would change anything. I mean, it, it, like, I, I mean, I get how it would work, yeah. the, the technical, but I don't know how it would change anything. I mean, because was, a lot of what... Sorry to interrupt. Was, was Alaska, when Sarah Palin lost, was that in the general ranked choice or was that the primary I think it, it, that was in the primary, but I think all candidates were on the ballot. Like, all, everybody could vote, right? Okay. And so... So that's what I'm thinking about is like, yeah, you can have a primary because you've got to reduce numbers ultimately, but you've got to, but everybody should have the ability to vote in it. Because what that forces then is a candidate, if there's two Republican candidates running right now in the current system, the key is like, how do I get to 51%? Well, 51% of those that vote in a primary tend to be the most extreme. So I've got to, you know, go to them. If it's a ranked choice voting, now you can look to moderates and even Democrats to say, at least, you know, vote for the Democratic candidate, but make your second choice me or second choice here. And then that is forcing people to the middle. I Look, yes, parties are still important to an extent because we have a system that is fully built around parties. And I, and I think parties are always going to have to have a, per, a, a role. But parties don't exist anymore. I mean, this is the key. Like, when, when, when you and I think of parties of 20 years ago... We do think of people sitting around a room, determining where the money is going to go, determining who to support, determining policies. None of that exists anymore. Ever since Citizens United, which was a disastrous uh, ruling, ever since the ban on soft money, which is McCain-Feingold, which I think has been disastrous as well, partially because it took a lot of that monetary power out of the committee structure, out of the party structure, and which took a lot of their ability to discipline members away. And so a party, I get people all the time like, well, why doesn't the Republican Party turn against Donald Trump? I'm like, okay, who? Who is the Republican Party? Is it Ronna Romney McDaniel? No, because she's subservient to where these interests are on the outside. So the parties only exist in terms of an official structure, but they don't have any power or anything anymore. And I think that's part of the chaotic moment we're in. So your prior guest 
I might agree that if we could have strong parties again, maybe that would actually be a disciplinary thing. But the way everything is set up, the money exists in the billionaires that can open super PACs and just fund whoever they want for whatever reason, but are limited to what they can give to the parties. Um, I, I do have a few fun questions here for you. Uh, you, you didn't talk uh, as much in the book about your when, when you fell in love with flying. You, you do talk yeah. about you know uh, get, getting interested in it pretty early on and taking the Cessna back and forth from D.C. back to your home district. But when, when did you first develop that interest? Oh, I had to have been like zero years old. I mean, I uh, <laughs> my dad was a private pilot. He didn't fly much actually. Uh, he basically got his pilot's license, flew for a little bit, but always you know, like with most people, it's expensive, and you know, kind of had to let it lapse and 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 decide to feed the family instead, which is nice of him to do. But but he's he'd always had a love for flying, so you know, we would always go to air shows. We would always talk about airplanes, and it's just like so. Every kid, you know, has some kind of unnatural interest that they're interested in. And I think a lot of the times that that kind of points the path to where they're going to go and what they're going to be. For me, I had an unnatural interest in politics. Here you go. And in flying. And I loved it. And I was able to do both. So uh, now I have a, a, a little bit better of a plane and I fly still and I love it. And I'll tell you what, it's... Uh, if God came down and said, Adam, I want you to just get out of politics altogether and go be an airline pilot or fly cargo, I would do it in a heartbeat because oh, I man. love it that much. So yeah. my brother, he, uh, he, he has advanced degrees, multiple advanced degrees. Um, he, uh, he's been in business with me. He started out in education. Um, and then we worked together for a few years, but then he went back into education, two master's degrees, I think six credits beyond his second master's. But at a certain point, he's a little bit older than me, just a little bit. Um, he looks way older than me, just in case he's listening. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but he, uh, he went into trucking. He, he wanted to be a, you know, a, a, what did you call it again? A necessary worker, a, uh, uh, yeah, essential. Essential yep. worker. He wanted to be an essential worker. He also wanted something a lot more stress-free than uh, mm-hmm. you know, being an administrator in education. So he's, uh, he's a trucker. My brother with the... Uh, <laughs> that's amazing. And I'll tell you the number of people I know. I knew a guy who was a successful state farm agent that now is flying commuter airlines. And you know, the number of people doing that and kind of realizing, like, I don't need... You know, either they're financially set anyway, or they're like, I don't need this big of a house to be happy, and they just do what they love. It's pretty inspiring to watch. I'm sure your brother loves it. Yeah, he's really he's he's at a good place mentally and emotionally, and uh, he's he he appreciates his, his job. He also he has a kind of job where he gets to come home every night instead yeah, of being yeah. long haul. So uh, it, it seems like a good gig. Um, quick question before we get to the quote unquote TPNR question. What, have you had time to think about next steps for you? I mean, I've had time. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I you know, look, I, I really put this in God's hands. I put it, you know, it's, it's, we'll see where everything shakes out. I'm not going to go on suicide missions and run for office so that I can look heroic and lose 80, 20. I don't know what I am even politically at the moment. I, I haven't really changed my views, but I don't identify. I've, I've kept the title Republican. I certainly don't identify with this party. You know, do Democrats welcome moderates? I'm not sure. Uh, I think they're a little better at it than Republicans are. But, you know, if you had somebody like me run as a Democrat, would would they be welcomed? I don't know. And so I, I look at it and say, I 
I'm starting to get the bug back a little bit to run. You know, I was really burned out at the end of last year. Um, but it's not going to be anytime soon, but we'll see. I, I, I wouldn't rule anything out. And, you know, whether that's a run even for the big job in 2028, it's possible. But it's not like it's something I'm planning or scheming for. It's more just like if I feel that this viewpoint is not being represented and I could make a difference uniquely, I'd, I'd consider jumping in again. Yeah, and Country First seems to be building a nationwide organization state by state. I get uh, I get the notifications here in California about events and updates, and it's really encouraging to see organizations like Country First uh, really planting seeds and, and bearing fruit all, all across the country. So, well, that's so I'm glad you said that because this is what we have to look at. This is not an overnight fix. It took us decades to get here. It's going to take a while. It's going to take investing in a 21-year-old that wants to run for the city council. It's going to take that long-term investment to make a difference. And I think that's what the, the sides of darkness are actually trying to count on is that we're going to get worn out and give up. They feed on chaos. We get, dis- we get tired by chaos. So they have an inherent advantage. This is where we have to stick to the fight. Yeah, slow and steady, slow and steady. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, your country first really is an encouraging development among a number of others around the country. Braver Angels is one that comes to mind. So I want to ask you the TPNR question, and you've already been answering this, uh, and you're already involved in the answer. But here it is. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, have better conversations with, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences? So people who think differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do a better talk of politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? No, I think it's fully possible. And this is where this to me, and in fact, when I'm out on the road and I give speeches, it's kind of what I typically rap with is like, everybody needs to find a friend that thinks differently than them. Now, I want to be careful and say, if somebody's like deep into conspiracy theories, you know, and they're they're in that like weird world. That doesn't mean that you have to go accept that and listen to that. And you know, like, there's a difference here. But if you have kind of your traditional conservative and you're a liberal or you're a conservative, and you know somebody is a traditional liberal, the key is when you talk to them, when you meet with them, when you get together with them, don't talk politics. Don't talk it until you get to know this person. Till you get to know who they are as a human being, till you get to under you see their soul. One of the things that's been amazing to me is, you know, my biggest fans now are on the left, which is which is something that two years ago <laughs> I never would have imagined, right? And I realized, like, wow, people on the left actually love America. They actually do care about the Constitution. They're the ones that are pushing hard for Ukraine to be able to crush the Russians. They're not a bunch of peace hippies like I thought they were. And so a lot of the stereotypes in your mind are thrown out the window. And it's like, well, I'm not going to agree with everything, of course. And, you know, I still have my beliefs. But I see now that most on the left, if not everybody on the left, actually means well. And that is the only thing that's the very first step and probably the only important step in then beginning to have reconciliation right everybody thinks they're the good guy al-qaeda thinks they're the good guy now don't go be friends with al-qaeda but (laughs) you know if you see if you see somebody that's on the left or right opposite of you they think they're doing the right thing you think you're doing the right thing probably neither of you are or both of you are who knows yeah in a way i'm I, you, you talk about fundamentalists, both political and religious fundamentalists. 
in the book. And in a way, I almost – it's not that I admire – but maybe I'm envious of the certainty that a lot of fundamentalists display. Yeah. I wish I was that certain about things. Yeah. But, you know, we have this uh, a check on ourselves or maybe a good wife or a good partner, life partner will yep. check you like, dude, are you sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, look, I can tell you, you know, when I think back to my old religion, my old cult, like, and I consider myself now just Protestant non-denominational, but... When I think back of my old religion, it's like there is a sense of security in that because, I mean, the 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 plan was laid out for you, the the rule book was laid out for you, and it, it's like there's a sense of comfort, but it also really destroys you because, man, it's just it's a corrosive influence. It is, it is. Uh, last question and one piece of business. Last question is: Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I do. What actually? got you into this idea of reconciliation? Where did this originate from? Like what, why you and so many other people that are talking to audiences are out there trying to spin disagreements and and division? Why me? Why me indeed? Um, Well, it goes back a few decades. It goes back, I I grew up in an observant Jewish family and I became a Christian around 2000. Uh, So it was right before uh, George W. Bush was elected. Um, And what that means is I had to have really charged conversations about our ethnic, religious, uh, theological background, our family, with my family, with my dad in particular. But then when I went to church pretty early on, we got into Afghanistan, we got into Iraq, and there were certain political issues, really heated political issues that were coming to bear. And I took scripture very seriously. I was you know, obviously raised in a Jewish family. So I knew Torah, I knew Hebrew Bible pretty well, um, even Talmud. And then I was most compelled by the theological convictions I arrived at by reading new, the New Testament, the Gospels, the letters, etc. And I realized that 02, 03, that's when I started to realize that some of the buddies I was going to Bible study with, that we were doing a Sunday school class with, that I was, you know, in the pews with me in the main service, that they weren't as compelled by what I was reading in, in the New Testament. Um, their priorities were, were something else. So <laughs> there were a few Bible studies I got kicked out of because I'm like, wait a second. It says something different than how you feel about immigration. You know, Leviticus. They're like, get out of here. Yeah, yeah. They're like, <laughs> what are you talking about? That's, you know. So I, you said something before, more so than any particular issue. I mean, we could, we could talk about abortion. You know, we could talk mm-hmm. about some of the hardest particular issues, gun, you know, uh, second amendment rights. We could talk about some of these hardest issues, but if we don't know how to talk to each other in the first place, we're not going to get anywhere on that stuff. So yeah, three years ago, uh, right before the 2020 election, and I didn't get to ask you about that, but maybe that's for part two. You'll you'll come back and let me know about your 2020 vote. Um, But I, I, I thought this is this. We have to do this first. We got to figure out how to talk to each other across our differences. And I thought what you said about get to know somebody, get to, you know, so, so invest in relationships as opposed to, so if your conversations have the foundation of a relationship, it's not based on a contest. It's not based on a transaction where I'm going to score a point, then you're going to score a point, but we got to, we got to figure out how to do it. And man, it's been so cool having people like you, people like David Brooks, people like Pete Weiner, John Roush, like all these awesome people, some great journalists and politicians, 
um, contributing to this idea that, number one, we can do it. And here's mm-hmm. a few ideas of how we can do it. So I've been uh, well, really and can I can, can I say, too, there is something amazing about when you free yourself to change your viewpoints and to look at what you believe again. So I talk about like truly now understanding who Jesus is and what my salvation means versus what I kind of used to believe has been spiritually freeing for me, but also being able to look at issues like guns and say, you know, I don't know if Jesus would be a huge Second Amendment advocate, you know, (laughs) or if he would say, like, yeah, maybe we need some reasonable measures because innocent people are being killed. Like, when you can free yourself to look at things with new eyes, it's actually a really good feeling to be able to kind of come to new set of conclusions or maybe come back to your old set of conclusions. But doing it in a way with fresh eyes is, is it's actually a pretty magical feeling. So rumor has it you've, you found a new, um, a new scholar to, uh, to learn from, N.T. Wright. And, and yeah. if you're reading some of his stuff, Tom, Tom Wright might remind you that Jesus' path to victory was through the cross. <laughs> That's, <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. Not through, not through the AR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so before we close, how can folks follow you, find more info about Country First and the new book, Renegade, and all the great work that you're doing? Yeah, so Renegade, you can find anywhere, Amazon, find it at the bookstores. Uh, I definitely appreciate you taking a look at it. Um, I'm on Twitter, but, you know, that's just toxic. So you can find me on Twitter. But I also started a Substack, just Adam oh. Kinzinger. And I've actually enjoyed that because it's kind of an un, unmitigated, unfiltered me and my family. And you'll see some of my kid in that process. And I'm starting to do an occasional podcast of just solo talking about issues out there and so that's growing so take a look at the podcast and then of course uh um you know all the all the other stuff i'm around so and the country first country1st.com so i appreciate it it's been fun being with you yeah and that'll all be in the show notes congressman kinzinger this was just fantastic i really appreciate yeah, I you taking the time and uh, i hope it's not the last time that we hang out uh, you're my, our audience has been dying to hear from you on, on this platform, so I really <laughs> appreciate nice. your time. Well, good. It was great to be with you, and have a great uh, have a great day, and we'll be back soon. Sounds good. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit the subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend. Get get involved in the conversation. We're easy to find, politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. You can find me on all the socials, at Corey S. Nathan, C-O-R-E-Y-S as in Sam Nathan. At Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect, and have a great week.